good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Today on the program, I'll talk to the author of a new book that explores the secrets of Chicago's North Shore. The dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel, will join me to review Shattered Globe Theater's Flood. Later in the show, I'll preview the Grammy Awards, which will be handed out tonight. And I'll catch up with the executive director of a suburban theater company that's presenting a rarely produced musical this month. That's all coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. Mention the North Shore to many Chicago area residents and their first thoughts might be of million dollar homes and posh downtowns. A new book is going beyond those perceptions to shed light on some of the hidden gems that exist in the nine town area known as the North Shore. The book titled Secret North Shore, A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful and Obscure highlights 84 unique spots from architecturally relevant places of worship and small museums to historic landmarks and charming independently owned businesses, the book has a little bit of everything. Personally, I think of Risky Business, Home Alone, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. All were filmed in that area, and they're all in the book. It comes from Chicago writer and one-time North Shore resident Ellen Schubart. I recently caught up with her to learn more about her explorations of Chicago's North Shore. What's your connection to the North Shore? Well, my family and I lived on the North Shore. We lived in Glencoe for over 40 years. The period of time when we raised, uh, my husband and I raised our kids, they went to high school there, and um, I served on the village board in Glencoe for eight years. And prior to that, I actually worked for Pioneer Press, which is currently a part of the Tribune Company, but at that time was an independent you know, local newspaper chain. So I did that for a decade. So I'm fairly familiar with the North Shore. And I had uh, written a number of books about the city of Chicago for this same publisher. And so uh, when I pitched the North Shore, he said, what's up there? And I just gave him a few examples. And uh, he said, fine. The name, the North Shore, I mean, I grew up in the western suburbs, so I always, uh, anyone who grew up in this area, we know the terms for uh, local geography. It's the western burbs, southern burbs, but the the North Shore kind of has its own unique name, and you write about it in the introduction that that just kind of grew organically. It started in the 1890s when a group of uh, civic-minded leaders decided that they really would like to have a road from Fort Sheridan, which is in today's Highland Park, um, down to the city. Uh, A lot of them were dealing with the fear of labor unrest. The city in the 1880s and 90s, as I'm sure you know, was filled with labor uh, strikes, 300 in one year. Uh, And the the biggie was the 1886 uh, Haymarket, what is today we call an affair rather than a riot, but um, the Haymarket uh, incident, and uh, they wanted a faster way for the troops to get 
from Fort Sheridan down to Chicago. They started out, and they are the ones, at least in the literature that I looked in, it's the first time that the term North Shore is used. Then as we go further uh, into history, and uh, by the turn of the century, about 1906, you get the what was then called the Sanitary District. Today it's the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District, naming their new canal up there, the North Shore Canal, um, it's, uh, it's, it's part of the system to deal with the waste of the area. And then there's a railroad that comes in the Chicago and North Shore line. And by that time, then, the term North Shore is used. I have to say that when we were titling the book, um, it was kind of uh, fun, but we had to put in the word Chicago because it's very common when you have uh, towns abutting a water area that you call it the North Shore. So Boston's got a North Shore and other places like that. We had to make sure that we that people would know it's Chicago's North Shore. Right, right. Yeah, people around here will know what you mean, but yeah, on a national level. So let's highlight some of the, the places that you write about. One of the first things that stuck out, because I've driven by this on Sheridan, but I wasn't quite sure what it was, but the Gross Point Lighthouse... And this has like a, a long history, and it's still open to the public today? It is still open to the public today, and it is a lighthouse from the era when there was a tremendous amount of shipping, both in the uh, Chicago River and on the lake. And as a result, people were putting up lighthouses. There were some other lighthouses on the North Shore as well, but after the Civil War, most of them disappeared because uh, shipping had changed from sailing to steamboats. So the one that's in Evanston is the one that was still there. It's got a phenomenal lens in it, and they they open it up on a, a, a first-come, first-served basis that you can go up and see what you can see. It sits on a promontory that sticks out right into Lake Michigan, and it shined a light to say to anybody that was sailing back and forth that this is not where you're supposed to be landing. you still got a little ways to go to, uh, uh, to Chicago. It's made out of um, uh, local land and stone, and it's a beautiful site. It sits in a nice park, and the Evanston Garden Club has a beautiful garden underneath it. So it's worth a nice half a day off. When you, when you go up Sheridan Road, you should just stop and take a look, even if you can't get in at that particular time. It's well worth the, the walking around on the grounds. Yeah, 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 I've driven by it, but I've never stopped, so I'm going to have to well, do that. Well, you should. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Uh, <laughs> another thing, I'm a big fan of museums, especially uh, mid- to small-size museums that maybe don't get as much attention. I always like checking those out, and um, you highlight a, a couple, but one that, that I had never heard of, the Mitchell Museum of the American Indian. That's also well, in Evanston? That- that is, uh, it's in the, the category of obscure. You're among many who don't know about it. The Mitchells were a couple who collected um, Indian artifacts in the previous age when that was something to do. You know, today it's very difficult to collect Indian artifacts. But And they have two wonderful floors. One is an exhibit that's permanent about all of the different Indian tribes in the area, uh, in in the nation, so you can hear the difference between 
the Plains Indians, the guys who wore mostly large feathered headdresses. And you can learn about the Woodland Indians, which are actually the indigenous peoples who were around here. They were from the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, or sometimes they call it the Chippewa, the Ojibwa, the Odawa, and the Potawatomi. And it's the Potawatomi who are down here in this area. So the museum, and then the second level of the museum, they have traveling exhibits. Each time you go there, it's something different and, and interesting. The thing about that museum is not only don't many people know about it, and it's a wonderful resource, but it's also very, very interactive. So if you bring kids of a certain age, I'd say under the age of 10, they'll find it fun to touch the furs, to put their hands into the Inuit mittens, to look at the boots. It's all um, touchy-feely kind of stuff that gives you an understanding of these people's culture and their clothing and their cooking. They also then have a terrific gallery permanent that's about Indian jewelry. And that in and of itself is worth a trip. Nice. Something else, I don't know if this is uh, like a formal museum, but is it the, the Kurt Teak House in Glencoe? Well, the Kurt Teak House is just a house. I, it, it, you're, you're viewing that from the, from the street. It's where the man who invented the postcard with the big bubble letters lived. The factory was actually in Chicago. But those bubble letter uh, postcards where inside the letters are little pictures of what's in the town um, were one of the most popular things. Penny postcards, two-cent postcards as the years go on. Um, He becomes the largest postcard publisher in, uh, in the United States. And actually, there is a museum where you can go see all of that because the collection from the Kirk Tyke archives today is at the Newberry Library in downtown Chicago. And you can go see if whether your town has a greetings from. I know that Glencoe does because the Glencoe Historical Society uh, sells note cards that have that on the cover. Hey, if you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the art section. I'm talking with Ellen Schubart. She's the author of the new book, Secret North Shore. I do have a couple other museums if you're if you're sure. interested. Yeah. Okay, one up in Lake Forest called the Lake Forest Lake Bluff History Center. It's in an old church and it's a fabulous museum about that town. It's one of many of the historical societies that exist that have museums. I I don't go into all of them, but the Lake Forest one is very comprehensive about the founding of Lake Forest, the founding of Lake Bluff, which was founded as a, um, it was a Methodist camping ground prior to becoming a commuter uh, suburb. And they've got, they've got wonderful touch screens with 30 to 40 stories on each one, of naming names and talking about how they did what they did. And of course, Lake Forest is one of the lead suburb, so to speak, in, in the affluence race. They, this is where the movers and shakers of the city used to go because there was no pollution and um, it was quiet, and they would work in the city but take the train home to Lake Forest, so the houses there are, are uh, uh, phenomenal. Another kind of interesting 
museum, but it's really a, it's, it's an, a museum about fraternities, is in Evanston. It's the Levere SAE, Sigma Alpha Epsilon House. It's their national fraternity headquarters. But if you go in there, you can see some exhibits about that. And the chapel, which is done with Louis Comfort Tiffany windows in it. There's lots of little museums around that make it fun to visit on a, on a half day. Another uh, site, that, not a museum, that, that caught my eye was this, I guess it's a, a piece of land that was called a No Man's Land in between Wilmette and Kenilworth. Yes, No Man's Land. You know, I'm old enough that I remember going to No Man's Land, but um, when I was there, I was, I, I was still young, and I never participated in the alcohol drinking. I, I was just going there because they had a great ice cream store. But No Man's Land is a piece of land that was at one time not annexed either to Kenilworth or to Wilmette. And as a result, a lot of speakeasies popped up and what they called blind pigs. That was the terminology for um, a speakeasy. And a lot of drinking. Um also, though, what went up there was uh, uh, an entertainment complex with a shopping center included called Plaza del Lago, and they had the Mar-a-Lago ballroom, and it was really very uh, fun to go. It, and, you know, think about the Roaring Twenties and Prohibition and the Jazz Age and all that stuff. Well, the Mar-a-Lago ballroom ultimately burns down, um, and not unhappily to either Wilmette or Kenilworth. They let the thing burn. They never sent the fire uh, brigades in. And uh, what's left is what is uh, partially today the shopping center, which is a very nice shopping center called Plaza del Lago, and a lot of land on the other on the east side of Sheridan Road uh, where there are high-rise condominium projects. I think there are five buildings in that in that area. So Plaza del Lago was, you know, the the raunchy um, place that you can you could go get a drink. There were um, two other towns that were famous for alcohol, whereas the North Shore as a whole is pretty dry until the 1970s. You could not get a drink in a restaurant in Glencoe, Wilmette, Winnetka, Highland Park, Lake Forest until the 70s. And instead, if you really wanted to drink, uh, have a drink with your meal, you would go up to Highwood. Highwood, which had been settled by Italian immigrants, mostly in the landscaping business, had turned to become uh, a restaurant haven, and uh, they agreed to sell alcohol. They also had a lot of kind of shady bars and stuff because they're right across the street from Fort Sheridan, and they serviced all of the uh, soldiers who could get a pass to get off the base and then just go drinking in a bar. They try to live that part of the heritage down. They still today are a very big restaurant town. Not everything is Italian anymore. Uh, a lot of them are much more cosmopolitan. There's a nice French restaurant. So it's, but it's a big restaurant town. And the third town is one that doesn't exist anymore. It was uh, founded in the 18... 18- 70s by a bunch of uh, German immigrants who came into an area that today is part of Wilmette. They called their town Gross Point. They called their township New Trier. 
because they came from Trier in Germany, and this was their new Trier. Um, and they were very successful. And being German, they liked to drink beer. And there were five saloons in town, bars, and that's what the municipality lived off of, the taxes from the bars. Well, more settlers came in. More settlers settled in Nutrier Township, in other towns, Winnetka, Glencoe, Northfield. There was a township-wide referendum in 1909, and Gross Point was outvoted. Nobody wanted to be wet. They wanted to be dry. At that point in time, Gross Point dissolved. They had no government revenue anymore because the bars had to close. Without revenue, you can't have a government that works. And so they sold their uh, village hall, which today is the home of the Wilmette Historical Society on Ridge Road in Wilmette. Wow. And they just disappeared. Well, (laughs) the the people didn't disappear, but the town just disappeared. Interesting. Interesting. How many total places did you highlight? There are 84 different places. That's what the publisher um, wants in their in their books. So that's what we did. My husband and I, uh, this is the third book that I've written with this publisher. It's the fifth book I've written. Um, so we're, we're pretty good at it, my husband and I. We went um, looking for the right sites. We visited about 100, picked 84 out of that that we thought, were the most interesting. He took all the pictures in the book. Nice. Um, except there are one or two historic photos. But uh, everything else is, is modern pictures, and he took them. So we went and visited all these places to see if it was was interesting. I'm sure it's tough picking a favorite because they're all your, your children. Well, they, yeah, it, exactly. But I was going to say the other thing that I did, um, Evanston is by far the biggest suburb on the on the shore, And they have the most entries. Um, They're kind of ranked according to how large the the suburb is and what they offer. Um, Evanston has not only its own attractions and quirks, weird things. I mean, one of the weird things about Evanston is that their downtown central area is called Fountain Square. But there's no fountain there. The fountain that gave the name to Fountain Square is located somewhere else at the Merrick Rose Garden. So I have the Merrick Rose Garden and the fountain in in one of the entries. Um, so that's Evanston's kinds of things. But they also, uh, Northwestern has a great many things, too. Um, starting off with the first item in the book is, is Northwestern's chapel called Alice Millar, which has some of the most beautiful, non-figurative stained glass, very modern stained glass windows um, that you can just walk in and, and see sometime. They're, they're really beautiful. And Northwestern's campus itself is a unique, weird kind of thing because they created it right out of the lake. It was all water where they now have the Norris uh, Campus Center and the tech buildings and a lot of the uh, athletic places. They dug it out of the water and it was landfill. It's an entire 60-acre artificially created campus. Wow. Why didn't they just build it on land? Well, because um, Evanston is, is lo- I mean, Northwestern is locked in by Evanston and there wasn't that kind of space anymore to do that on the land. 
and it was a lot easier uh, to just create their own land and put their own buildings on it. Also, Evanston and Northwestern don't have a great relationship, which was <laughs> evidenced recently by the the all the uh, problems about uh, the arena. But um, that's been going on for a long time. At one time, Evanston was owned, the land of Evanston was owned by Northwestern University, and they ceded it to the town of Evanston. Um, but this was done in the 1960s at that point. There was no way Evanston was going to give any land to Northwestern. Wow. So it's an, inter- it's an interesting place. Ellen, thanks so much for making time to talk with me. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for the questions. And uh, I love talking about the book. So. <laughs> That's Ellen Schubart. She's the author of Secret North Shore, A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure. And it's available in some local bookstores and online at readypress.com. Ellen will be participating in some book signing events this month, one on February 15th at the History Center of Lake Forest and Lake Bluff, and then on February 21st at the Northbrook Public Library. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the Arts Section on Sunday morning, make sure to visit the show's website over at theartsection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org. Mississippi moon, won't you keep on shining on the black water? Keep on rolling. Mississippi moon, won't you keep on shining on me? Yeah, keep on shining. And you are listening to the art section. My name's Gary Zydek. Joining me now remotely are the dueling critics. Carrie Reed and Jonathan of Barbanel. Good morning. Oh, good, good morning, morning, Gary. And Jonathan's back from assignment, but didn't make it quite back in time to see today's play that we're going to be discussing. So he's going to let Carrie take lead on this one. But then after Carrie's review, we're going to talk a little bit about some theater news that came out this past week. So I'm quite a few years away from retirement. But I hope I don't spend my days working on a self-described great structure using popsicle sticks when I do retire. That's how one of the characters spends his time in Shattered Globe Theater's latest and absurdist comedy titled Flood. It comes from Brooklyn-based playwright Mushuk Mashtak Dean. Flood focuses on a retired couple, Edith and Darren, who live on the 19th floor of a condo building. Darren is the one who's building something. And I'm guessing what it is will be a metaphor for a bigger idea that's explored in this play. Let's hear what Carrie has to say. There's a lot going on in Flood. There there is a lot going on in Flood, yes. It is an absurdist play, as you mentioned. But it's an absurdist play with a bit of a 1950s sitcom feel or perhaps some some of the Neil Simon urban midlife uh, comedies, comedies, dramedies like Prisoner of Second Avenue. Um, and there's a certain environmental uh, cautionary tale also woven through 
So you would think that all of these things kind of being put together wouldn't work all that well. But I have to say, for the most part, I did find uh, Dean's play Flood, now in its Chicago premiere at Shatter Globe, as you mentioned, pretty entrancing. It's about 90 minutes. It's a wonderful cast. And I think the points that it hits on are, are fresh enough that even though it wears some of the DNA of earlier absurdist works, I was particularly thinking of Samuel Beckett, perhaps Happy Days, you know, where an older couple is kind of just facing the same thing day after day after day as dirt mounts around one of you know, the wife. It, it wears the DNA pretty pretty easily and with enough freshness of its own that I think it might be worthwhile for anyone who is at all interested in absurdist theater. If you're not interested in absurdist theater, I don't know that this is the play that will change your mind, but I think it's well worth seeing for the performances, certainly. Instead of the dirt that I mentioned in Happy Days, where for our listeners who don't know, Samuel Beckett's play Happy Days involves a woman, Winnie, who is kind of chirping along about her day and all the wonderful things she's going to do while she is slowly buried, first in the first act up to her waist in a pile of dirt and then up to her neck by the second half. We don't have dirt in this play. We have water. As you mentioned, it's a a married couple, Edith and Darren. Darren uh, is very absorbed in building a great structure. He wears a wooden mask, so we have trouble seeing his face. He is building this structure out of what his wife calls toothpicks, much to his disdain, because these are pieces of wood with which he is building his great structure. Really, it looks like he's making models out of popsicle sticks. (laughs) But this is something that has absorbed him. It has taken him away from his wife and their children, grown children, who live on the lower floors of this high-rise building. The problem is the kids keep calling and telling them, hey, the water is rising. The world is, is flooding. You need to be paying attention now to what is going on. But Darren can't be bothered because he's working on his great structure, and Edith is sort of stuck in the middle between them. She's waiting for her husband to finish this great structure so they can finally enjoy looking at the future, they can enjoy their tea, all the things they've said they're doing. Obviously, these are metaphors to the ways in which we waste our own days and don't pay attention you know, to the, the immediate things around us, whether it's family, whether, in fact, it is a flood. It's directed by Ken Prestoninzi, and I have to say, I think uh, I've seen other works of his. I don't know that I've actually seen him as a director take on an absurdist play before, and I think he does a pretty good job with this. Of course, it helps when you have wonderful actors like H.B. Ward, who is playing playing Darren, and a longtime Shattered Globe ensemble member and, you know, local treasure, Linda Ryder, is playing Edith. There's a wonderful set that just sort of like gives you that sort of 50s sitcom, Dick Van Dyke, mid-century modern feel. The other element that comes up is that when there are un- what they call unanswerable questions, such as, does midnight mean the end of one day or the start of another, Edith and Darren write them down in these red volumes. And answering the unanswerable questions is also this thing they're going to do in the future when the great structure is finished. Of course, we never finish the great structures of our lives. We simply end, right? And I think that that's one of the cautionary things in addition to, you know, sort of the immediate fable about environmental depredation and the, you know, rising water, you know, the rising ocean levels that Dean is working in here. And we actually have a a clip from that scene you're talking about, Carrie. So let's pause here and listen to a a clip from Flood. What is midnight? (laughs) Question mark. You keep me on my toes, Edith. And that's why you keep me around, Darren, love. Is it? 
Perhaps it's changed over the years, but I think for a while now, you like that I ask you unanswerable questions. They're not unanswerable. Let's not get carried away. We can't answer them. Yeah, but we're going to answer them. We're going to look up the answers. Oh, we've been saying that for a while now. We have a lot of questions to get through. I'm busy. Can't you see that I'm busy? I'm working. That's for when the work is done. When the work is done, we shall sit together and we shall have tea. <laughs> An Earl Grey for you and a Lady Bergamot for me. And we will answer all the unanswerable questions together. Side by side, as we look out at our very pleasant view. Yes, side by side, together. Something to look forward to. When do you think? <laughs> when what? When do you think we will sit side by side and drink tea? I don't know, Edith. Soon. Someday. <laughs> Someday soon. Do you think I should get the water ready? No, yet? not quite yet. There's time yet. We shouldn't rush things. It's just... Never mind. It's just... Never mind. I hate it when you do this, Edith. You say never mind, but you don't mean never mind. I hate it when you do this, Darren. You assume you know what I mean when I don't even know what I mean. <laughs> that was Edith and Darren trying to figure out when they're going to have time to answer those unanswerable questions in Shattered Globe Theater's new production of Flood. Carrie? I don't know that it all fits together super smoothly at times. I think towards the end it gets not exactly heavy-handed, but a little inchoate. But, you know, it's, it's, it's paced at a, at, a, at a fine clip, and there's enough humor and wit in the dialogue, and I think particularly in the relationship between Darren and Edith, that I found myself absorbed more often than not by Flood. I really think that what's uh, happening in that marriage, aside from all the absurdism, all the environmental messages, is the idea of a couple that's been long married, you know, they're still, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're comfortable, they're companionable, but there is this distance, and they are kind of waiting to reconnect rather than just deciding now we must reconnect you know they've sort of made room for each other's foibles without really thinking about how do we stand together again as a couple in the world and i think that part's pretty relatable whether you're a fan of absurdity or not and the adult children what's that relationship like um they they are interestingly enough named darren jr and Edith Jr., and they're much more contemporary. You know, the parents have more the sort of 50s feel. The children are wearing, you know, more brightly colored clothing. And really, they're just, it, it, this is a detail I love, by the way. They're calling their parents, and the phone is represented by a tin can and twine, like those old little telephones. Those of us of a certain age who grew up before cell phones might have used <laughs> to, uh, to have telephone <laughs> conversations with each other around the house. You know, I think they're supposed to represent a contemporary generation, whether it's you know, the Greta Thunberg generation warning us about global warming or just, you know, Gen Z, you know, millennials who are saying, look, <laughs> while you're all are trying to think about your great structure, we need help with nuts and bolts stuff going on right now. Uh, one thing that occurred to me while watching this is this idea of building great structures and having this great legacy, you know, doing something mar marvelous and monumental like, oh, I don't know, SpaceX and going to Mars rather than, you know, taking care of the things that are happening right in front of your eyes if you would only open them and pay attention. So as I said, there's a lot going on here, but I think that it's, it's sculpted well enough by Dean as a playwright. And I've not seen his other works, but based on this, I would be, I would be interested in, in seeing more from him. 
and a, you know, very solid and handsome staging from Shattered Globe. I know you can't speak for various audience age groups. Do you get a sense of maybe some of the comedy in Flood hit differently depending on what uh, age bracket you're in? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm supposed to be the person who hates millennials and boomers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't. <laughs> I also don't have children, and I think maybe that's the part that I wouldn't necessarily tie into emotionally as much as perhaps some of the other audience members were. This idea that there is, even though your children may live very close to you, you're all operating on very different planes and with very different experiences of the world. Um, and the children are trying to reintegrate. They keep asking their mother, please put, you know, Darren on the phone. They do refer to their parents by their first names, which Edith finds rather, you know, rather forward. But they are they are definitely asking for help. Um and it's not forthcoming. We understand that they, too, have children who are not seen in the play. Uh, so there's a sense that it's sort of this multi-generational story, but that the older folks have kind of, you know, Darren particularly, as I mentioned, has kind of shut himself off into this self-absorbed, you know, I want to do my great project. I want to have this thing that I leave the world. And as you said, Gary, when you see it, it does have a certain metaphoric, uh, you know, uh, heft to it. But we won't go into that because I'd like people to be able to discover that on their own. But yeah, I suppose it might be. You know, as I said, if you're a fan of absurdism, this play may seem a little familiar. If you've seen Beckett, if you've seen Ionesco, there may be some elements of this play. They're like, ah, sort of these repetitions and these sorts of interchanges between the characters have a little bit of a whiff of that. But as I said, it doesn't feel like it's being... Um, slavishly uh, derivative. I mean, these are just tropes that recur you know, in those who are consciously using absurdism as a dramaturgical technique. Jonathan, are you going to go see it? Well, I would, I'm sorry that I haven't had a chance to see it because, you know, I'm nearly finished with my scale model of the Taj Mahal <laughs> made, entirely, made entirely from COVID test kit swaps. Uh, I was going to say Q-tips. I was so close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, uh, COVID test kit swaps. Thank you, Carrie, for reminding me of the old tin can telephone lines. You, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, when, it, when that came out, I did say I had to laugh pretty hard. And oh, that's yeah. where I was wondering, do younger people get that? Do they understand <laughs> what that is? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Shattered Globe Theater's flood continues through March 9th. And now moving on to some uh, theater news. Not a, a huge surprise, uh, but Goodman Theater's uh, longtime executive director, Rock Schulfer, is stepping down from his role. He's been with the company for 50 years, which I, I just looked up, and Goodman's been around for 98 years, so he's been there for <laughs> more than half of the theater's life. Indeed, uh, 50 years, and I've known Rock for that entire period of time. Uh, you know, so you know, I was only three when I <laughs> right, right, yeah, right. He Rock, found you Rock. abandoned on the bank of the Chicago River in a basket made of rushes, as I recall, John. Uh, <laughs> well, something like that. Um, Rock Schilfer is one of those uh, very unusual stories in this day and age. He's a man who's only worked at one place for his entire life, at least to date. Uh, Rock began working at the Goodman as a box office treasurer, selling tickets uh, in 1973. Uh, he was right out of university and rose very quickly due to his aptitude and his skill and his, uh, and his vision. 
and uh, became managing director and then uh, executive director, a position that he has held for many years, a number of decades now. I do not know any other, I cannot think of any other member of a theater administration in Chicago who's put in 50 years. 30, yes, 35, 38, this has happened a few times. But 50 years is exceptional, it is extraordinary. And Rock quite literally uh, leaves, when he leaves the Goodman, he leaves a great structure of his life, and that is the (laughs) Goodman Theater Complex, the two-theater complex on Dearborn Street, into which they moved about, um, I think it was 2000 or 2001, from the Art Institute, from the old Goodman Theater, in back of the Art Institute of Chicago. And more than any other single individual, that theater rose and... The Goodman as an institution has flourished because of Rock Edward Schofer, and make no mistake about it. He truly has been one of the movers and one of the shakers of Chicago theater of the last half century. Right, and he is succeeded in this position by John Collins, who is somebody he has mentored. John has been in the position of managing director, so they did not do a national search. You know, that we've, you and I have talked in the past, Jonathan, about how there's sometimes been rancor in the community when a, when a theater, I think particularly uh, Victory Gardens back in the day when they uh, promoted from within and did not do a national search as I guess they had promised or people thought they had promised. I think this makes sense. You know, one of the things that's really important to note with the Goodman, and which Schulfer certainly did when I spoke to him for the reader a couple weeks ago when this announcement first came out, was that, you know, they're in pretty good financial shape right now, which definitely is not the case for a lot of theaters, even in Chicago. Steppenwolf announced last fall that they were making some some cuts in staffing and, and pay. Uh, Looking Glass had kind of put their season on hiatus and had cut a lot of staff. Goodman's had a pretty good pretty good run since coming out of the COVID pandemic shutdown. Some of that, of course, is relatable to shows like The Who's Tommy, which we've talked about several times and which is going to Broadway. Several shows during the time that Schulfer has been there, and especially under the uh, artistic leadership of Bob Falls, who left, uh, I think, two years ago, have made their way to Broadway. But I agree with you, Jonathan. It's not the, you know, the splashy shows, although those are wonderful. It's the fact that he has created or helped to create with, with many other people a very, very firm foundation for this theater and has expanded. They now have two spaces, whereas the old Goodman on the you know, on the Art Institute grounds, which is now where the modern wing stands. Really, they had a studio, and there was a studio series, but nothing as grand as what they have with the Owen, which is a great flex-you second space. And I've seen so many wonderful shows there that have used that space in really interesting ways, as I know you have as well, Jonathan, in addition to the proscenium Albert. So they've got that sort of classic two-theater setup. They have also built a wonderful education and outreach center, the Alice Rappaport Center, and I believe uh, John Collins, who is coming in as executive director, was one of the people spearheading that. So they've really been responsive to the community. They have built a number of sort of parallel programs that maybe we don't see on stage, but are definitely important in building uh, the case that they are not just an artistic asset, but they are literally a community asset. They work with the community, whether it's younger people, whether it's older people in their generations program, which works with older Chicagoans to collect their stories. Not all of these are Schulfer's ideas necessarily, but he is the person who made it possible for these ideas to flourish. Now, when I talked to him, he wanted to be very clear with me. He is not retiring. Uh, he may be 72, but he plans to be around as a consultant, maybe not officially hanging out his 
you know, his shingle in the consulting business. But the Goodman is officially going into their 100th year in 2025, so I'm sure he'll be quite quite in the thick of it, you know, planning various uh, things around that and, you know, really just further shoring up the board. He also wanted to express his gratitude to the board because one of the things that I think is pretty remarkable during the shutdown the Goodman did not lose any of their full-time staff. They did not cut anybody. And Schulfer said that's because he went to the board and said, we lose people now, it'll throw us behind. It'll it'll take us years to rebuild people in those positions. And, you know, God bless the board, I say, for digging deep until some of the government support money could come through yeah. to keep yeah. that going. And that, that, again, is not the case with every theater, even other theaters in town. You know, it's been a pretty remarkable ride, and I tip my hat to Rock and all the, the board members and the people who've worked with him to, to kind of pull, particularly in these recent years when it has not been easy. Indeed. Rock has always had a very strong vision for not only the Goodman as an institution, but for Chicago theater and for national theater. He looks to the future. And he has played a very, very important role beyond the Goodman, beyond Chicago, in uh, national not-for-profit theater. He has been, uh, at various times, on the board or an officer of the League of Resident Theaters, Lord, of which Goodman is a member, and also the Theater Communications Group, uh, which is the nation's uh, largest uh, voluntary organization of not-for-profit theaters, and he's been instrumental in guiding both of those. He was also among the early supporters of the League of Chicago Theaters and served for some years as president of the foundation of the League of Chicago Theaters, and he may Mm -hmm. still be on the board, doing a lot of good work. He has given his, very quietly, without any showboating, given his expertise and support to a number of smaller off-loop theaters served on the board, if memory does not fail me, mm-hmm. of Lifeline Theater up in Rogers Park, and I think Rivendell in Edgewater as well. And I'm sure he will do more of that. It yeah. isn't just all the golf courses at which Rock has not yet played, <laughs> and, there, and there are many, but uh, as you said, someone with his degree of expertise and his depth of knowledge cannot even if he wanted to, simply retire. Right. And I think what you've said is true. I mean, John Collins certainly spoke very highly of, of the mentorship that he got from Rock, just, you know, around social media and other conversations around this announcement. So many people were like, I learned everything I knew I needed to know. Maybe not everything I needed to know, but a lot that I, <laughs> that I started out knowing because of Rock and that he has always had, you know, this sort of open door. He will talk to you. He will, you know, he will help uh, consult. And he, and when, you know, he's, I, I think we can agree that executive directors tend to be the more buttoned-down side of the uh, of the equation. But when he talks about the role of theater, you know, he he can become pretty pretty evangelical in the role of the arts. And I've, that's one thing I've always appreciated every time I've talked to him is that these are not you know theater is not elitist. It is not meant to be an elitist art form. It is meant to be for everyone. So let's build the structures to make that possible. Sure, occasionally that means you'll be doing a big hit. Like the Who's Tommy and the top tickets are going to be beyond the price of many others. But along with that, they, you know, they they were one of the first theaters I think to uh, pioneer student matinees for schools and many other things. And they, certainly, in terms of diversity, they have produced. They were the first theater I think in the country to produce all ten of August Wilson's plays in the Century Cycle. But many many other playwrights and some who have been in residence there and have been produced many times, like. Regina Taylor, uh, Rebecca Gilman certainly got 
you know, her national reputation through the support. Although she wasn't first produced at the Goodman, when they started paying attention to her and putting her on their stage is when, you know, her, her profile definitely took a huge step upward. So some of that, of course, also goes back to Bob Falls, obviously. But again, you can't do those, those kinds of visions unless you have somebody who is willing to build that foundation, shore it up, and continually make the case for why it matters. And I, that's one of the things I've always appreciated in talking to Rock. It's not, you know, he's, he, he's not just dollars and cents. It's the, the beating soul and the heartbeat you know, of what those dollars and cents can help you do for the community. Absolutely. Well, best wishes to Rock Schulfer, and uh, welcome back, Jonathan. Carrie, Jonathan, Thank you. thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, we Gary. You. Everyone will have a, a warm and wonderful weekend, because it looks like maybe, maybe we'll get lucky, <laughs> and uh, it won't be so cold the next uh, few days. You just jinxed us. Just uh, maybe I did. I'm so sorry. <laughs> maybe kidding. there'll be a flood. <laughs> This is the Arts Section, I'm Gary Zydek. The 66th Annual Grammy Awards Ceremony is set to take place tonight. Lots of golden gramophones will be handed out at the Crypto.com Arena. And lots of people will then get upset about who won the statues and complain about it online. SZA, who we're listening to now, has the most nominations with nine. She's nominated in all the big categories, including Best Album. The other nominees in that category include Boy Genius, Janelle Monet, John Batiste, Lana Del Rey, Miley Cyrus, Olivia Rodrigo, and Taylor Swift. Not sure if people uh, know that name, and I think most people are predicting Taylor will win because she's the world's biggest pop star and has won Album of the Year three times before. Other possibilities are the aforementioned SZA and Olivia Rodrigo, and I think John Batiste could be a dark horse candidate to win. He's been doing a lot of press lately. Record of the Year is one of the other major Grammys. The nominees are Billie Eilish for What Was I Made For? That's off the Barbie soundtrack. Boy Genius for Not Strong Enough. John Batiste for Worship. Miley Cyrus for Flowers. Olivia Rodrigo for Vampire. SZA for Kill Bill, which we were just listening to. Victoria Monet for Oh My Mama. And then Taylor Swift for Antihero. The record of the year category is meant to honor the performance and production of a particular track. Could be another swift sweep type of night. If that's the case, she'll win this. Other potentials, SZA's Kill Bill and Miley Cyrus's Flowers. And Billie Eilish could also win. She's won record of the year multiple times already. Song of the year is all about recognizing the songwriter thinking Taylor Swift wins that one. Best New Artist always gets a lot of attention. Last year, jazz fans were pleased to see Samara Joy take home the gold in this category. This year's nominees include Coco Jones, Gracie Abrams, Fred Again, Ice Spice, Jelly Roll, Noah Kahn, Victoria Monet, and The War and Treaty. 
34-year-old R&B and pop singer Victoria Monet seems like the favorite here. This is her first nomination as a performer, but she's been nominated before as a songwriter. In addition to the awards, there's always lots of performances at the ceremony. This year's lineup includes a mix of contemporary artists like Billie Eilish, Dua Lipa, SZA, Olivia Rodrigo, Luke Combs, and Travis Scott. And some older stars like U2, Billy Joel, and 80-year-old Joni Mitchell. The Grammy ceremony will be hosted by Trevor Noah this year. It'll be broadcast on CBS, and it starts at 7 p.m. local time. Bangkok, oriental setting in the city, don't know what the city is getting. The creme de la creme of the chess world. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. I've always liked this song. One Night in Bangkok was released in the fall of 1984. It climbed the charts all over the world into 85, reaching number one in many European countries and peaking at number three in the U.S. The song is performed by Murray Head, but it was actually written and composed by two of the members of ABBA and legendary lyricist Tim Rice. One Night in Bangkok originally appeared on a concept album titled Chess that was released by RCA Records. The double album received positive reviews and was adapted into a staged musical that premiered in London's West End in 1986. The story focuses on two chess masters, one American and one Soviet, that compete in a tournament and for the love of a woman. That production ran for about three years. The creative team reimagined the show for a Broadway production that debuted in 1988. That version didn't do so well and closed after two and a half months. Over the years, companies all over the world have revived chess, but it doesn't pop up too frequently. A suburban theater company is shining a light on the somewhat forgotten musical this month. Naperville-based Brightside Theater is presenting Chess in Concert, a music-heavy production that features a 20-person cast and a live orchestra in an intimate venue. I recently caught up with Brightside Theater Executive Director Julie Ann Cormack, who is one of the leads in this upcoming production. The title of Brightside Comedies and Musicals are really where we find is our sweet spot. We've always felt that life is full of drama and times in the world are, are dramatic and we kind of want this to be a little bit of an escapism. I'm a little bit of a coming to the theater to just simply enjoy and to have some fun. Lots of farces. We love farce. That was really the initial piece to why we started Brightside Theater. Cormac co-founded Brightside Theater 13 years ago when she realized there wasn't any professional theater companies in Naperville. Our performance spaces are on the campus of North Central College, so that has been our artistic home since 2011 when we started, and our goal is to enlighten, to educate, and entertain our audiences. We do that through comedies and musicals, and we also have a Brightside Theater youth program where we work with children as well. Brightside presents a four-show season that includes a winter production that's usually something that isn't as well-known. And we just most recently added, back in 2019, this concert version of a production, and it's typically in the winter time slot. It's a really short, quick run. Um, it's just a great way to entertain our audiences in a different way, to bring a new piece that is probably not produced 
often or for many reasons it's very difficult to produce in full production mode. So by bringing something that maybe they would not be able to see into a short two-weekend run in-concert version of the production, and we do it in a cabaret setting which is a little bit more unique than versus our three-quarter thrust stage where the rest of our season takes place. And despite some of those big names involved with those early stage versions, you don't see too many companies presenting chess these days. You don't see it pop up too often. It is not. And, you know, the music being written by ABBA, um, it's definitely got a little bit of its cult following to it, um, although it's not a Mamma Mia hit. Most people go, oh, I've never heard of chess. And I say, oh, have you heard... One Night in Bangkok in the 80s on the radio. And they're like, well, I know that song. I'm like, well, that's in the show. So it was was just really kind of this pop culture thing that kind of came through. You know, it it didn't kind of make its big, huge Broadway. didn't have a big, huge splash with it. It's really about the music behind it, which is another reason why we take a show, put the orchestra on stage behind the actors as well and do this in this concert version. We have a couple more um, musicians because we have more space to do that. So we have 10 musicians. Our cast of chest is uh, a cast of 20. We will still act it and sing it top to bottom, um, but it is there's a lot of the focus on the music, which really is the big draw to this particular musical. Right. I was reading about the whole history of how this project came together. It eventually took on all these different forms on stage, but it it started off as a a concept album. Yes, and there are many, many versions, oddly enough. Um, Again, didn't have kind of the big hit, um, and so they kind of kept making changes and what they felt were fixes to it. So there are different versions of it. Um, We are ultimately performing the U.S. version versus the London version. So for those who know the show, really, I always call it the Judy Kuhn version because she was Florence in this particular production that is most closely to the script and to the music that we are performing, um, where it probably got its biggest notoriety was through the London version with Elaine Page. There was like a, I don't know if it was a PBS special that was filmed yeah. and like Josh Groban's in it. and Adina Menzel. Right, yes. right. Yes, and Adam Pascal, exactly. So that version's got a couple different tweaks in it as well. Um, so, but yeah, the, it's interesting that we chose this. It kind of lends itself almost best to a concert version piece. And yes, we did have it on PBS in the Chicagoland area. I remember watching it back then. It just felt like this was the right time to do it. It was just a really cool, fun piece for us. Maybe not the most happy-go-lucky musical, but it's got a, lot, a little bit of angst in it, and it's got a little bit of that, that kind of that rock opera feel. Yet there's beautiful ballads and songs that are in there that, besides One Night in Bangkok, people know. And so we're just so glad to bring it to our audience. Uh, would you call it then like a, a rock opera, or does it have dialogue? <laughs> There's, there's definitely dialogue in it. Um, it's, I would say, more of a little bit of a rock musical. But again, even the variety of the music within the show itself quite varies, um, which is, which is, is cool. There's some beautiful ballads. There's some great um, duets. Um, I know him so well. He's probably one of the most famous female duets that are out there, and that's within this production as well. So I think there's a little bit of everything in this musical for someone that they're going to connect to. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. I'm talking to Julie Ann Cormack, the Executive Director of Naperville-based Brightside Theater, about the company's upcoming production of Chess in Concert. It really takes place in the 80s and kind of the Cold War times, and it's about two chess masters who meet in Bangkok and battle over the world championship. A little bit of a offshoot of maybe a Bobby Fischer story, but it's about really about love, the love of the game, a lot of you know, kind of the political and spine, the struggle to get the upper hand um, over the Russians, which is 
interesting timing. It's still about the characters and their story and their journey between love and and finding uh, their happiness. So in addition to being the executive director of Bright Side Theater, you're also performing in this production. Have you ever participated in a chess in concert before? I have not. And honestly, this is probably one of my favorites and probably the one that I brought to the table for our season this year. It's just for me, it's kind of iconic and music that I grew up listening to when I was younger. So I, I absolutely adore the music um, and I love its storyline. And we've got amazing voices and a great orchestra to really kind of bring the lush sound of this musical to life. So I, I'm very excited to, to be able to grace the stage in this show this year. I know you can't speak for the folks who, who put this on in the West End in London and then on Broadway, but why do you think it, it never found that success uh, when it first opened? Yeah, I would say um, you, the storyline and the script is a little jumpy, and so there's it, it, the music is really lush and, and delves into the characters where the script is very short and brief within there, and so there's a lot that's put in to kind of drive the story from beginning to end. So I think that's part of why it hasn't had its its huge success. Um, and I, like with Mamma Mia, like it's a fun storyline. Like people go to see the show because of the music, I think, in that realm. Um, and I do think that that's kind of the draw with Chess as well. But Mamma Mia became the cult hit. I think it just, it had a decent storyline that was continuous through, was very simple. Um, it can be a fairly complicated storyline um, and understanding who's a Russian and who's an American and where their locations are at. And so that's why I think it's a unique way to do it in a concert because they're all over the world, you know, playing chess and it's hard to create a stage and represent all of those locations. That's Julie Ann Cormack, the executive director of Naperville-based Brightside Theater. The company is presenting chess in concerts starting February 9th. You can find more information at brightsidetheater.com. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name's Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. The weather's a little warmer. We're going to say goodbye with something from Lakeisha Benjamin. She's nominated for a few Grammys tonight, including Best Jazz Performance for this track called Basquiat. Thanks for listening.